And if you want to, you can turn, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 1. And, it, you know, it's, it's a little bit, we're easing on into Christmas here, which is a good, good time of year for everybody, right? We got several weeks before Christmas. And, uh, and really, Christmas, I, I've been meditating on the story a lot. Been reading Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, Matthew 1 and 2, and just sort of meditating on the story. And uh, there's several things that came to my mind and just were sort of burning in my heart. And so I want to start a, a Christmas message and preach it here a little bit early uh, from Luke chapter 1 and, and jump right on into that. Now, you know, they, the, the, in, in church history, they actually call this season Advent. And they start to celebrate Advent four Sundays before Christmas starts. And Advent really is just a Latin word that means coming. And it means to, it's placed there because we start to celebrate the coming of Christ. Not only his first coming, but his second coming. Because we know and believe that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God came in the flesh about 2,000 years ago and was a little boy on this earth and lived on this earth for 33 years and was crucified, put to death and buried and raised again from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated with God at, the right, at his right hand. But he will come again a second time to receive his church unto himself and then establish his kingdom on earth and then when he establishes his kingdom, he will rule and reign forever with his people. We believe that. Amen. That's a, that is a belief of the Christian church. And that's why we celebrate Advent. Because we not only believe that God has already came in the flesh once, but he's coming again the second time to restore all things. And when you think about Christmas and you think about Advent and, and the message of, of Christmas, really when I read through this, it's, it's kind of about hope more than anything. It's about an expectation of good things to come. And it's about enduring faith in impossible situations when you believe that nothing's going to change and nothing is going to get better and nothing good is coming along and it looks like you're surrounded by darkness, but you have faith that the promises of God are going to be fulfilled in their time. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but a big part of the Christian life is, is about people coming into the place where they live to walk by faith and not by sight. Amen? Where you finally learn to, learn to understand that everything that's going on in my life and everything I see on the outside of me cannot dictate the way that I live my life. That the Christian life means that I cannot base what I believe on what I see on my, in my daily life. But I have to begin to base what I believe on the promises of God, knowing that whatever He has promised me, whatever He has said, that's what I put my hope in, and I'm believing that His promises are going to come to pass in impossible situations. Now, God, He's, he's kind of unusual, because from the beginning to the end, He gives promises about the future. And even now, even though so many of God's promises have been fulfilled, there are still so many that, have, that, are, that are not fulfilled. But from the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, God promised Satan. Didn't he? he gave Satan a promise. He said, listen, you may have turned everything upside down and brought sin and sickness and disease and evil into this world and corrupted this world, but I'm going to give you a promise that from the woman's offspring is going to come a child. It's going to come a man, and he is going to crush your head even though you'll bruise his heel. And from the beginning, even when that promise came to Satan, he was ready to do something about it because you remember he tried to kill all the babies during Moses' time. And then during Jesus' time, once again, he tried to kill all of the, the firstborn sons in, in a general vicinity. And Jesus, with his parents, had to flee from that area. Why? Because Satan was trying to stop the promises of God. But see, really the truth is Satan can never stop the promises of God. It's up to you and I whether or not the promises of God are fulfilled. Amen? 
So he does that, and then you, you read on a little bit further. You get into the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is an interesting book because in Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Israel, basically telling them to turn from their sin. And they're not turning from their sin. And so the Assyrian Empire is going to come in and just basically destroy Jerusalem and cause them to go into exile and go into darkness and go into bondage and all of these things. And in the midst of that, God prophesies through Isaiah. And Isaiah says, but unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. And of the increase of that government and of the peace of that government, there shall be no end. And he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah seven fourteen, God says to him, look, I know, I know you're in trouble. I know it's a bad thing. And it, look, he's given them promises that aren't even going to be fulfilled for another 700 years. Imagine getting a promise. They're like, look, I know you're going to go into exile. Some of you are probably going to get killed. But guess what? God's going to give you a sign. And a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Now, a lot of times we think, well, that's not any good for them because, because they're, they're going to die. They're going to go into exile. And they're not going to see the promises fulfilled. But here's what the Lord showed me a picture of. I was actually talking with Andrea about this this weekend. And as we were talking about it, the, the picture the Lord gave me was that these people, 700 years, heard a promise from God in the midst of their tribulation, and they didn't get to see it fulfilled in their lifetime. But see, that same son that was born some 700 years later was born, crucified, and died. And when he died, the Scripture says that he descended into the lower parts of the earth and preached the gospel to those who were bound in prison. What that means is that those people who believed in the promise 700 years ago were dead and still waiting on the promise and Jesus showed up and he said, you remember when Isaiah prophesied and said there was going to be a son born and they were going to call his name Emmanuel? Well, here I am. I am God with you in this present moment. And he was raised from the dead and he led captivity captive and set them free and brought them into the fulfillment of all the promises that God had ever given them. And I'm telling you, you and I, we have promises we have promises that God desires to give us and it is essential that we learn to live by those promises and walk by those promises. And in Luke chapter 1, here's where we're going to start. I'm going to read a lot of verses and we're just going to go through this verse by verse. It should be fun. So Luke chapter 1 verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Ab Abijah. His wife was, the was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. They're both, you know, don't ever say anything to anybody about, hey, you're, you're well advanced in years. That's like the politically correct way of saying you're old, right? But so they were well advanced in years. They had no child. And immediately what you begin to think about is Abraham. And Abraham was given a promise by God from the very beginning. The promises that were all wrapped up in this thing, it started with a man named Abraham who was 100 years old and his wife 90 when they finally conceived and gave birth to the promised son. And it was so messed up that they had gotten to a place where they literally had no hope and God showed up when, when Sarah was about 89 years old and God says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to return to you about the time of life and then your wife is going to conceive and you're going to have a child. And you know what Sarah did in the background? She went, <laughs> She giggled. She laughed. And God said, hey, why, why Sarah laugh? And, and then she tried to act like she didn't laugh. 
Because God, God, God was like, hey, what's, what's up there? And then the Lord says this to her in, in Genesis 18, 14. I love it. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, here's one of the things that the Lord does that I've never fully understand, but somehow I'm starting to begin to love it. Is that anytime God decides to do anything in our lives, or anybody's life for that matter, He actually has to bring you to a position where it looks impossible and it looks hopeless so that He can stir you to a place of radical faith. And most of the things that God is calling you to and most of the things that you hope for in your life, they seem impossible and oftentimes God will even allow things to be stripped away so it looks like it's never going to happen so that you can get to the place where you trust in nothing except God Himself to fulfill the promise. So what I'm telling you right now is that just because it looks like there's no way it's going to happen, just because it looks like certain things aren't going to happen, the Lord gave us a promise for this church. Last week we got a word talking about how we're supposed to hold on to the promises given to this body. Because oftentimes, even in our ministry and pursuing the things of the Lord, we get into a position where it looks like things aren't going the way that we plan them out. And when they don't go the way we plan them out, we start to think, well, this ain't even going to happen. And God is saying, no, it ain't about how well you're doing or how well people are doing around you. It's about my promises and whether or not you're able to stir up radical faith and believe me for what I said to come to pass in your life. And he's always looking to bring people into that position. So I'm telling you, if you're in a place right now where you're hopeless, you are a prime candidate for God to begin to move in your life and say, hey, I'm calling you out because I see that you ain't got no hope. And the Bible says that Abraham chose to hope against hope. That even though it looked impossible from natural circumstances, he chose to believe God. Now, Zechariah, he knows the story of Abraham. But I imagine that Zechariah's kind of like, well, you know, he's like us. At Abraham stuff, it's a Bible story. At this point, Zechariah had not been written in the book. You know what I'm talking about. He had not yet been written in the book, so when he hears the story about Abraham believing in God to have a baby whenever they're both barren and old and, and impossible for that thing to happen, he's just like, well, that's a Bible story. That couldn't happen to me. Any of y'all ever been in that situation? That's just a Bible story. That doesn't happen in our life. And Zechariah, he is in this, this same position and it goes, you know, here's, here's one of the things that's very interesting is Zechariah's name literally means God has remembered. And his wife Elizabeth, her name means an oath or a promise or a covenant of God, which means when you join the two together, God has remembered his oath, his promise, his covenant that he's made with you. And the two are joined together and they give birth to a son. But, but let's, let's look at what happens because... It wasn't going so well for, for Zechariah in the beginning. It says in verse 8, So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, that's verse 8, verse 9, it says, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar, of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Now, it says that Zechariah, he was in the priesthood, and it was his time to go into the holy place where he would tend to the things of the showbread and to the altar of incense and to the golden candle. He would re he'd put oil in the candles. Now, he wasn't going into the Holy of Holies because it was not yet the Day of Atonement. He was just going to tend to the holy place. And as he goes in, he gets to the point because his, his, his role in this situation was to burn incense at the altar. 
Now, incense in the Scripture, in the book of Revelation, it literally says that the 24 elders, they hold golden bowls full of incense which symbolize the prayers of the saints. Scripture says in, 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 in Psalms 141, let my prayers rise like incense before you. When you pray to God, when we prayed to God this morning, you couldn't smell it nor see it, but in the spiritual realm, our prayers are like incense that ascend before God, and it is a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. And the Scripture talks about how our prayers are literally stole, stored up in these bowls that will be poured out on the earth in the end times. Now, I want you to consider that. Because every time you pray, these things are going up before God. He's smelling them. He hears them. He knows your prayers. He hears your prayers. And the angel shows up, and, and he's in this place next to this. And, and here's, here's another thing that's really interesting about, about this, is when they were in the temple, the Jewish tradition says that while they were burning incense, there was a veil to the presence of God right there in front of the incense. And Jewish tradition says that on the Day of Atonement, as they begin to burn the incense, which symbolized the prayer of God, the veil, which was 18 inches thick, would supernaturally open, and they could enter in. Now, what that's a picture of is that when you pray, and when you come into the, you, when you pray and your, your heart is a heart of prayer, what you do is you supernaturally begin to come into the presence of God. And when we join together, that's why when we join together every morning when we're here in the church, we, we, we come into a place of unity and prayer. Because as we're doing it, I'm telling you, a veil is opening up and all of a sudden you sense a shift. And when you've got an entire group of people that have been burning incense day and night and lifting up prayers to God, well, they walk around in the presence of God. They live from the presence of God. And prayer is most effective when it is in and from the presence of God. Because you know something? The presence of God will actually change what you pray. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean is you can come to God with a prayer list. You want to see this happen, that happen, this happen, and that happen. And all of a sudden, while you begin to pray and that incense come up, comes up before God, you find yourself in the presence of God. And in the presence of God, your requests are exchanged for His requests. And your prayer changes. Your heart changes. Your mind changes. Why? Because you just connected with the One who answers all requests. You just connected with the one who knows all needs and has all understanding. And you may have came with a selfish request, but all of a sudden in his presence, everything changes. And you realize what you need in that moment and your prayer request changes. Amen? Now he gets into this presence. And here's, here's, here's what's kind of crazy about this. Is I, I, my question is, is was Zechariah even praying? Because, because the angel shows up. And the angel shows up and it ends up saying that his, that his prayer is heard. It says, verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. My question is, was Zechariah even praying while he was in there? And the reason I ask that is because that verse can literally be translated, The prayer you prayed but stopped praying is now heard. You ever prayed a prayer that didn't come to pass when you wanted it to, the way you wanted it to, and all of a sudden you stopped praying it? Anybody? 
Because it didn't come on your time schedule. It didn't come when you wanted it. It didn't come the way you wanted it to. And so you got bitter. You got upset. And for, for Zechariah, I need you to imagine this because in his time, to be barren and to not be able to have children means that you were probably cursed by God and you were doing something wrong. And that's why you're barren. And I can imagine for years, probably 20, 30, maybe 40 years, they're praying, God, give us a child. Let us have a child. And now naturally, on the inside, when he looks around, he's like, well, it's impossible possible now God you can't give us a child now because now my wife's old well advanced in years and and I'm well advanced in years and there's no way that we're going to be able to have a child now because this time's passed so forget it God and now he's just going in look he's doing his religious ritual he's doing his duty he's still a good man but he has no hope left and no faith left He's not believing God for the impossible anymore. And the angel appears to him while he's bitter and in a condition where he thinks that nothing is going to happen anymore in this circumstance. And the angel says, hey, Zechariah, the prayer you used to pray, but you stopped praying, he said, the Lord heard that prayer. And I need some of y'all to receive that right now. I received that this week while I was praying. I was like, Lord, you know what? There's some prayers that I've prayed. And based on that verse, God, I'm going to hold it up to you and I'm going to say, hey, won't you remember my prayers that I prayed but stopped praying? Won't you, won't you remember those prayers that I used to pray but I've stopped believing because I've been jaded? I've gotten bitter in some areas in my life. I've gotten frustrated. And in some areas, I've given up hope. And I'm telling you right now, there are people in here right now under the sound of my voice that you've been praying for something for so long and because it did not happen on your timeline, you gave up hope. You got bitter. You got frustrated. You still love God. You still go through the motions. You still come to church. You're still doing your duty. But on the inside, you stop praying that prayer and you quit believing God to come through. And I'm telling you, the angel of the Lord would come to you right now and say, hey, the prayer that you pray, but you stop praying. It ain't that God didn't hear it. He has heard it, and he's about to answer that thing. Now, I want you to understand that promises come to reignite hope. Promises come to reignite hope. And when you don't have a promise, it's hard to have hope. I counseled with somebody this past week, and she had been through, she was in a gang in Louisville, and man, just crazy stuff that was unheard of. It, was sho- it shocked me for a minute. For a minute, I got fearful. I was like, who am I sitting here talking to? I might get killed by the time I leave out of here. But then she has no hope, and she's beginning to tell me. She's beginning to express in her words. You don't understand all the things that I've seen. I've seen this. This has happened to me. This has been done to me my whole life. I've been kidnapped. I've been chained to a bed for months. All these things have happened to me because I was a part of this gang. She said, it ain't going to get no better for me. I'm going to die like this. That's what she said out of her mouth. So I said, well, hold on a minute. And I went to the book of Psalms, and I read several Psalms about how David was afflicted and he had these persecutors and tormentors and torturers and he was praying for God to deliver deliver him. And I read Psalm after Psalm. I I probably read Psalms to her for 20 minutes. And I just sat there and read to her. And by the time I was done reading these Psalms, what happened to her was these promises that she had never heard before in her life, never heard the Bible read before. And promises that she had never heard before in her life were now coming to the surface. And what happened in those 20 minutes was all of a sudden you went from no hope to just a spark of hope and glimmer in her eye. She smiled a little bit and said, well, that makes me feel better. What is that called? That's called hope. It's just a spark of hope in the midst of darkness. Why? Because a promise came that she had never heard before. And look, deep down in her heart, she's seen so much evil, she's not seen much good in her entire life. But all of a sudden, a word comes to her and hope is reignited. And God is saying, some of you all need to get a promise in your heart and let hope be reignited for your future and what God has for you. 
Verse 14 through 16, then it says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, the angel is talking about John the Baptist. He says, look, this baby that you're having, he said, he's neither going to drink wine nor strong drink, but he's going to be filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Now, in our generation, this is an unusual way to say things because in our generation, even from the pulpit a lot of times, we try to figure out ways to justify things that are in gray areas and possibly sinful and things like this. But this scripture actually points out that the key to getting set free from sin and from the lust of the flesh is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Somebody amen me on that. Y'all need to hear that this morning. The key to break addiction and sinful behaviors is to be filled with the Spirit of God. And now here's the other thing that, that what he's saying about this, and this is, this is important for the church, because John the Baptist, it turns out, when Jesus uh, comes to full age and he speaks about John the Baptist, he says about John, he says, listen, there is no man that has been born of woman that is greater than John the Baptist. But he says, of all those who are in the kingdom of heaven, which is you and I, he says, they're all better than John the Baptist. And he's talking about a changing covenant. And here's what he's saying. He's saying all the prophets that came before, Elijah, Moses, He's saying, David even, none of them compare to John the Baptist. None of them compare. And I think to myself, are you kidding me, Lord? Elijah raised people from the dead. They did miracles. Elisha did 14 miracles. John the Baptist did no miracles. Only thing he did was go out and holler at Herod and tell him to quit sleeping with his brother's wife. Somebody amen me this morning, y'all I mean, that's literally what he did. He preached repentance. He did zero miracles. And, and Jesus said there is no one greater than John the Baptist in the Old Testament. Here's why he said that. Because John the Baptist, all the Old Testament prophets, they pointed to Jesus, but they pointed to him a far way off. When John the Baptist came, Jesus walked on the shores of Galilee as he was baptizing people. And John the Baptist pointed directly at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He was not the greatest based on miracles because miracles are not what make people great. What makes people great is how well their life points directly to Jesus. It ain't got to do with how many miracles you do or how awesome you are or how famous you become in our culture. It's got everything to do with how well your life points directly to Jesus. And he says, now that you're in the kingdom, you have the potential to point even more directly to Jesus than he did because Jesus did not live on the inside of John the Baptist, but now he lives on the inside of you and I because we're Christians. Amen? We point directly to Jesus, and this is what he's saying. But, here, but here's the point, is that now people say questions all the time. Well, you know, maybe I should do a little bit of this or have, leave a little bit of this in my life, a little bit of maybe this, this questionable behavior because maybe it'll help me just uh, to be uh, relatable and relevant to people around me. Let me tell you something. You should seek as a Christian to be as pure as you can in this life. And I'll tell you why. Because whatever part of us is not holy when we die, God is going to have to burn it out of us. Realize that. So it's not a good idea to say, well, I got saved, but I'm going to continue to keep a little few sins here in my life here and there. No, he's going to have to burn that out of you when you die one way or the other. You might as well get it out of you now. You might as well let the Holy Spirit fill you and burn out those impurities in you now. Because this, the truth is, is that, look, all are called to holiness, but there are different levels of consecration. 
And if you want your life to point directly to Jesus, you have to step into a greater level of consecration and say, God, I would like to keep this in my life, but the truth is, is I want you more, so I'm making room and I'm saying no to those things and I'm consecrating my life in this area to you. And when your ministry and your life is pure, it becomes more effective. You are not more effective because you're like the world. You are far more effective because you are different than the world. And when the world sees you, they say, this person has peace, this person has joy, and this person is pure. They've chosen to lay down the things of the world to be close to God. And because of that, I see something in them that I don't have. You don't reach the world by being like the world. You reach the world by being like Jesus. You reach the world by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? I'm getting caught up in every one of these right here. Verse 18 through 20, it says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? How shall I know I'm going to have this child? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Now, listen to this. He says, look, angel, you're talking to an 80-year-old man here. How am I going to know that you're going to give me and my wife a child? And, the, and the Gabriel says, how are you going to know? I'm a daggone angel. I stand in the presence of God. And I've come to bring you this word, and this word will be fulfilled in this time. And he said, you know what? No, no, no. You know, matter of fact, and he muted him. Put a mute button on him. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all got a mute button? Boom. You got one on your phone? You don't want nobody to hear you? So the angel is saying, look, I cannot allow this guy to speak anymore because we're talking about some big issues. If John the Baptist is not born, and if John the Baptist does not point directly to Jesus, some things are going to go haywire. This is a big, big point, something that's happening in human history. Probably the most important 33 years of human history are getting ready to take place, and the angel cannot afford for somebody by their words to abort the mission of God. He says, all right, Zachariah, you ain't going to believe me, that's fine. Mute. He put him on mute for nine months. Now, we don't tell y'all wish y'all had a mute button on some people for like nine months. Put that away for a minute. You know what I'm saying? But here's the point. Here's the point. And, and Donald talked about this last week, is that the children of Israel reveal it more than anybody because if you look in the Old Testament, what did God? God said, I'm going to bring you into a promised land. He's saying, I'm going to fulfill all of my promises in your life. And rather than believing God, it was going to take 11 days for them to enter into the promised land. And it took them 40 years. But the truth is, is that 3 million of them did not even enter in. Because instead of believing God's promises, the scripture says that 14 times, rather than believing God, what did they choose to do? They chose to complain. And I'm telling you right now, there are people that they get caught up in it. And I get caught up in it sometimes too, and the Lord corrects me. But when you choose to see your circumstances above the Word of God, and you choose to complain, you don't even realize it, but you are aborting the plan of God for your life and the life of others. And some people will say, well, yeah, see, I told you it wasn't going to happen. I told you it wasn't going to happen. Well, of course it didn't happen. You sat there and complained for 14 years. Of course it's not going to happen. You didn't believe the promise of God. The Scripture says they could not enter into the promises of God because of their unbelief. Because rather than believe God, they chose to complain. 
And I'm telling you, sometimes you need to put a mute button on you. And here's, here's the truth. I know Proverbs 13, 22 says that, that a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And many of you, you have a sickened heart because you had a hope and the thing is deferred and you've set it off and it's, and it's been, been moved away from you. He says, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. But what you have to understand is while that desire is waiting on coming, the Bible says that life and death are in the power of your tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. And whatever you speak while you're waiting on this promise to happen is either going to fuel the promise to come quicker or it's going to reject and abort the promise that you have coming based on what's coming out of your mouth. So, oh, old dude, Zacharias, he gets, he gets muted, gets put the mute button on. And then you go to verse 26 and 28. Now we go into Mary in this story. And it says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, this angel comes in and speaks to this girl who's probably about 14 years old. And he says, You're the highly favored one. Now, when we think about somebody being highly favored, let's just be honest. If I say, you know what, the Lord's going to give you favor, He's going to give you blessing. When we think about that, I'm just going to be honest with you, maybe you can, re- you can change the way that I think about it. But when we think of being highly favored, here's what we think about in America. We think about having plenty of money, having a nice car, maybe the Lord's going to give me a good house, and He's going to open up just doors of opportunity and blessing and increase and all those things. Now, primarily when we think about favor, is that not what we think about, anybody? That's what we think about. Because in the American culture, that's how we're hardwired. We believe favor is money. We believe favor is consumeristic financial gain. That's why we got a thing called Black Friday. Because we really feel favored on Black Friday. Man, we get $1,000 in savings. Man, the favor of God hit me this Black Friday. You know what I'm saying? And we feel good about all the buys we got. We got some good buys. That's favor. Lord blessed us. But... This actually turns that idea of favor up on its head because he says, hey, Mary, you're highly favored. Guess what? You're 14-year-old. You're about to be pregnant, and you ain't even married. Now, for for this group of people, that's kind of a big deal because if you read in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 22, which they obviously adhered to, if a woman gets pregnant before she is married, period, she is considered an adulteress, and what they would do is they would take her out and make a public example of her by literally putting her in the market square, tearing her clothes, and letting her hair down like a prostitute. And then if the husband-to-be chose to do so, guess what they could do? They could stone her and put her to death. Yeah, highly favored. Congratulations. This don't feel like favor, Lord. And matter of fact, it doesn't, it didn't, some, let me tell you this. Sometimes the favor of God doesn't feel like favor. Sometimes the favor of God will bring you into a position where people just won't like you that much. There was nobody more favored than Jesus, and guess what happened? They crucified him. And the favor of God was all over his life. So I'm telling you, favor sometimes works differently in the kingdom of God, and it's not always the way that you think it is because favor has to do with you fulfilling God's purpose and God's destiny for your life, period. Now, sometimes God does favor us, and sometimes he does give us nice things, and I've seen him do it in my life. Sometimes I laugh because he's so good to me in certain areas. And he does take care of us financially. He does all those things. But when we're talking about favor here, it's just a little bit of a different story. 
And favor is tied into God's presence because in verse 28, he says, you're the highly favored one. He says, the Lord is with you. And here's what I want you to understand is that God does not promise to you no trouble. There are no promises in the word of God that says there will be no trouble. Matter of fact, he promises you that you will have trouble. But what he does promise you also is that not that you won't have trouble, but that in the midst of trouble, his presence will be with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll give you wisdom in the midst of trouble. And there is no trouble or no circumstance that you go through that He will not use for your ultimate benefit and His ultimate glory. And that's good news. Because I begin to know and understand that, man, favor is a little bit different when God chooses to give me this. And, and so, so Mary realizes, okay, well, I, I'm favored. I don't, I don't really feel like I am. But you know, even, even her husband, Joseph, he finds out she's pregnant. He's a pretty good dude. And you know what he says in the book of Matthew? It says, he decided, you know what? I don't want her to die. Man, that's a good guy, isn't it? I don't want to stone her to death. And I don't want to make her a public example. I'd rather not shame her by tearing her clothes and letting her hair down in the public market while we all call her adulterer and spit on her while we walk by. Like, Joseph, you're a pretty good guy. I'm glad you didn't do that. But then he says, so he was was considering a way he's going to put her away privately. And while he went to bed that night praying on these things of, Lord, how am I going to do this without hurting her and having her killed? And, and, and I, this is going to be bad for me and my family and everybody. And that night, the angel appears to him and says, Joseph, that thing which your wife has conceived is the Holy Son of God. And you're going to father him. And you're going to call his name Jesus. And he woke up and he knew this is different. Something else is going on. Because Mary had conceived in her womb. And here's what she says in verse, verse 20, 29 through 34. It says, But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, the angel, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He's quoting Isaiah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary responds by saying to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? Or in other words, how can this be considering I'm not a virgin? Now here's what we, here's what we understand. Zechariah doubted. He said, how's this going to be? And now, now he, he just didn't believe it straight up. But Mary is literally asking, No, seriously, angel, how's this going to happen? I mean, like, do I need to get with Joseph or what? Because I'm a virgin. And she just bends straight up with the angel. And the angel begins to give her the answer. And the angel said to her, in verse 35, says, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born of you will be called the Son of God. Now, a lot of times, whenever you ask God, Lord, how is this going to happen? That's how He responds. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And I'm telling you, there's so many things in your life that God wants to see happen and see transformed and see your life to fulfill. And God is saying, and you're saying, Lord, how's this going to happen? And I'm telling you right now, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And He will enable you to do what you couldn't do before. And see, this is a picture of our new birth. You know that the Holy Spirit takes men and women who are degenerate, who don't know God, who are lost in sin, who are broken. And when they put faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? They, there's a conception that takes place in their spirit and they are born again of a new spirit. And the thing about Jesus is, is that there's only one other man in human history that was born without an earth, earthly father. You know what his name was? It was Adam. And Jesus comes as the last Adam. 
And he was the only other man than Adam that was born in human history without an earthly father. Adam was called the son of God. Jesus was called the son of God in the last Adam. And what Adam brought in, into the world, Jesus brought in as the son of God to reverse everything that Adam had brought into the world. And we're talking about God becoming flesh, being born of a woman. When I begin to think about the fact that God himself was in a woman's womb, and he was born as a little crying infant baby. And she was holding God in that moment, in the flesh. And the reason he had to become human is because if he does not become human, he cannot save humanity. He had to enter into everything that you and I enter into. He had to feel what we feel. He had to experience what we experience. And God becoming flesh is the greatest miracle that has ever happened in human history. Because when God participates in humanity, that means that, guess what? Now you and I can participate in the divine life. God enters into us. He enters into humanity. Why? So that we can enter back into God. And we can partake of His divine nature. And the Scripture says that the way we partake of the divine nature is through the promises that He gives us. So in verse 36 and 37, Now, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. And then in verse 37, he says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Now, I always say this because, you know, I, I, I like to ask the question, is really nothing impossible? Really? Is really nothing impossible? My dad always says, you can't drive a Cadillac up your nose. Take you a minute to get that one. You can't, y'all have tried? Drive a Cadillac up your nose and see if it works. It's impossible, isn't it? So, is, 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 are they really saying that, it's, that, 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 that nothing is impossible? Now, the actual word there for nothing is no rhema. And it's not just the word nothing. It literally means no spoken word of God will ever be impossible. And here's what it says. Put it up there in the Passion Translation if you got it. should be the next one, actually, in, on the list. It says, not one promise from God is empty of power, for nothing is impossible with God. Not one promise of God is empty of power. And what that means is that when you get a promise from God, whether it comes from you reading Scripture or somebody giving you a prophetic word from the Lord, but when a promise of God comes your way, you might as well write that thing down and hold on to it and meditate on it because the promise itself holds the power that when it gets planted into your heart, that is actually what brings forth the fulfillment of it. It is the Word of God that comes and it has its own power within itself to make sure that it is fulfilled. And in verse 38, Mary responds to it and she says, Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let it be to me according to your word. How often have you gotten in the Scripture and you've seen some just words that were amazing and you've just said to the Lord, You know what, Lord? Let it be to me according to your word. Whenever we read that verse earlier, we talked about, see right there, we, 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 we read promises about healing this morning. That on our sickbed, God is going to raise us up and He's going to give us healing in body and soul. How often do we say, Lord, let it be to me according to Your Word. She's saying amen in this moment because it's, it's just like the song we sing all the, all the time. All your promises, God, are yes and amen. What Scripture literally says is that in Christ Jesus, because of what He's done, there are over 3,000 promises in this book and every one that I read have already gotten their yes stamped on it in Christ Jesus. But my participation and my work and my responsibility is to say amen to it, Lord, 
so be it in my life. And what I'm telling you is, is these promises of God won't just happen to you because they're in the book. Amen? They're not just going to happen to you because they're in the book. They only happen when, they plant, when they're planted in your heart and you agree with them in faith and say, let it be to me, God, according to your word. Verse 43, now Mary goes over to Elizabeth's house because they're both pregnant at this time. In verse 43, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and she says, But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now Elizabeth, is, she's, she's full of joy. Mary's walked in, and, Mary's, and, and Elizabeth has baby John in her womb. She's got baby Jesus. Mary's got baby Jesus in her womb. And they walk in, and Elizabeth says, hey, when you walked in, and listen to this. Here's how full of the Holy Spirit Elizabeth is. She said, what, what's this to me that the mother of my Lord? She's calling a fetus her Lord. Man, that's crazy. I love that. She just called a fetus her Lord. Who is it that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? And she walks in the door and she said, as soon as you entered into the door, she said, my babe leaped in my womb for joy because of this. Now John the Baptist, let me tell you something, true joy only comes from true purpose. And John the Baptist knew, even from his mother's womb, what his purpose was. Let me tell you something, your children, they've got purpose while they're in the womb. While they're in the womb, they've got purpose. John the Baptist is in his mother's womb, and he knows the purpose that is upon his life. And so when Jesus enters the door, what does he do? He leaps for joy. Because he knows, man, my life is for one thing and for one thing alone, and it is to prepare the way for that baby over there. And I'm going to prepare the way for that baby, and I'm going to preach repentance, and I'm going to shine as a light that points to the true light. And see, true joy in your life. We seek joy from all kinds of things. And most of the things that we seek to bring us happiness in our American culture are superficial at best. We think when we get the right person or we get the right house or we get the right clothes or we get a a job that pays a certain amount of money, we'll be happy. Bull. Ain't none of it ever going to make you happy. The only true joy and fulfillment you are ever going to experience is when you finally understand that your life is designed to live for one purpose and one purpose alone and that is to point to Jesus Christ. And that will bring you joy because you finally know and understand that you are fulfilling your purpose. And she says, blessed is she who believed. She understands that Mary believes in this moment. Now, I like this because she said, blessed is she who believed. And you know Zacharias is over in another room because he didn't believe. And he's over there been, not even been able to say a word for like six months at this point. She just punked him out. Barb, that's what you need to do to Bob on occasion. Keep him in, in line over there. Yeah, yeah, so, so let, me take this, let me take a break from my sermon just to tell a story on Bob right quick. So last week in the sermon, you know, Donald said you need to go out and write out people you're thankful for. So Bob did his top ten list. And you know who made the top ten, number ten? Barb did. <laughs> she was number ten. <laughs> Praise God. I'm glad you made it, Barb. <laughs> That's good. But she said, blessed is she who believed, for there shall be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And here's what she's saying. Belief determines fulfillment. 
Belief determines fulfillment. What you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Your belief determines the fulfillment of the things that are going to come to pass in your life. And so Mary, she breaks out in a song, and I'm just going to read it real quick. I'm going to read through it really quick. It's kind of long, but I'm going to read it. And Mary breaks out in the song in verse 46, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent empty away. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His seed forever. Now, Mary's song is pretty awesome because you're basically seeing somebody rejoicing that's realizing. Her and Elizabeth are coming to the point where they're realizing, look, we are nobody. We are insignificant 14, I'm a 14-year-old virgin. You've been barren most of your life. We're poor. We've got no money. And all of a sudden, God chooses us to bring about the greatest 33 years in human history that have ever happened on the world. And she begins to rejoice about this. And she ends up singing out, and she talks about two things specifically. She talks about pride and humility. Because when we're talking about the promises of God being fulfilled, one of the biggest things that are going to get in your way in God's promises being fulfilled in your life is your own pride. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble, right? Now she begins to say in verse 52, He has put down the mighty ones from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Every person that God ever used, they started out from a low position. When He chose David, you know that David, of all of his brothers, was the only one that was not even considered in the beginning? They put all the other seven brothers up in front of him and said, which one's going to be king? He said, it ain't none of these. Ain't you got another brother? He said, well, David's out in the the fields, but surely it's not him. God chose him to be king. He chooses Moses. Moses is 80 years old and has a speech impediment. And God says, you're going to be the one to bring my people out of Egypt. He ain't even got a pair of shoes no more. He had to take them off down at the burning bush. And God says, you're 80 years old, you got a speech impediment, I'm sending you in. Then then Jesus picks somebody to head up his church, and you know who he picks? He picks a blue-collar redneck fisherman named Peter who denied him three times and says, upon this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My point is, is if you think you're weak, you're in good company because you're the ones that God likes to choose. And he... He lowers the proud, but He exalts the lowly. And when you can come into a position in your life where you say, God, apart from you, I've got nothing. See, the Scripture says here that He sends away the rich empty. And He says, because they filled themselves with all these things. You can live in this world, and you can believe that you've got everything you need. Man, I've got everything I need, you know what? I, and I can take care of stuff. I've got this thing figured out. My marriage is good. My life is good. My job is good. I've got this thing figured out. And yeah, I believe in God. I'll call on God when I need Him. He actually says you're in a dangerous position there because you're at the place where you're running your own life. And He says He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. What's their imagination? Their imagination is, is that they're in control. You think you can plan your own life out. You think you can figure this thing out. And he said he scattered the proud in their own imagination. You need to get your imagination right, and your imagination should be that without God, you are not going to live. Without Jesus and His promises, you are not going to make it. 
You have got to come to a place of humility where just like Mary, look, she's 14 years old. She probably did have her life planned out. She probably had imaginations of the future and what was going to happen and was just daydreaming about it all day. And God comes to her and says, look, let me wreck that for you. You're going to give birth to a baby outside of wedlock. Are you willing to allow God to wreck all of your plans and everything that you want for your life and you set aside your pride and say, I'm not in control, God? What happens in my career, what happens in my job, what happens in my family, it's up to you. And if it's up to you, then I've got one responsibility. That's to maintain my character, to seek your face, to point to you every day of my life, Jesus, to stop complaining. Because complaining just reveals that I don't trust you. Somebody amen me right now. You complaining about something, all it reveals is that you just don't trust God. Straight up. You quit trusting him a long time ago. As a matter of fact, what you're actually doing in your own pride is probably you're trying to tear down somebody else so you can make yourself look better. All right, I'll come back a little bit. Shauna told me not to go too hard on y'all this morning. So you talk about humility. He puts down the mighty. He exalts the lowly. I mean, God is born, and where is God born? What palace is he born? He's born in a barn. He's born in a manger. We're talking about God being born. That's the humility that God brings into this place. And finally, let me skip on down. Verse 63, 64. I'm going to finish up. You guys come to the music. Verse 63 and 64. It says, And he asked for a writing tablet. Now this is Zechariah. At the end of nine months, she has John the Baptist. And it's the eighth day. They're circumcising him. They're getting things in order. And he asked for a writing tablet because they wanted to know what his name would be. And he wrote saying his name is John. So they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke praising God. So he wrote down on a paper, John. And that name means Yahweh is gracious. And as soon as he wrote down his name is Yahweh is gracious. John, what? His mouth was open and his tongue was loose. Because you know what the scripture says? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for necessary edification and building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And when he had come into alignment with God's purpose and God's will, his tongue was loosed and he was able to finally praise God. And that's what your mouth was made for, amen? Your mouth was made to give God praise, to give God thanks, and to glorify Him and to hold back your complaints and begin to control what you're going to speak because there's life and death in the power of your tongue. I'm going to paraphrase just a few things, but you go on and now, now it's Mary's time to have the baby, and in chapter 2, if you read, you can read the story yourself. But the Scripture says that there were shepherds keeping watch over this flock at night. And these shepherds were keeping watch over this flock. And as they were, these angels appeared to them and began to, to tell them about this Messiah that was going to be born. He said, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior in Bethlehem. And they begin to say this to these shepherds. And here's what's so crazy about it. These shepherds, I believe with all of my heart, they knew exactly where to go, because they knew the prophecies. And in Micah chapter 4, verse 8, let's read those. You put Micah up there. It says, In you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come. Now this tower of the flock, everybody in Israel knew that the tower of the flock was a place with a big barn underneath it, and it was a place where all of the, the, the they would put the, the, the lambs. So what these shepherds would do 
is these shepherds, they would keep the Passover lambs and they would raise these Passover lambs. And every Passover lamb, what? It was to be born without spot and without blemish. So when they would have those lambs, they would take them in Bethlehem. And if you go to verse five, chapter 5, verse 2, what's it say? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So it's prophesying that not only will Jesus be born in Bethlehem, but he'll be born near the tower of the flock. See? Now we know this. Now in this tower of the flock, like I said, they would keep these Passover lambs without spot, without blemish. And whenever they were born, in order to protect them from getting scratched up or scraped or anything, they would take those lambs and they would place them in the tower of the flock and wrap them in swaddling clothes and lie them in a manger. Isn't that awesome? So you're talking about Mary being highly favored. Now let me tell you this. How many women we got pregnant in here right now? I know Jess is. Anybody else pregnant in here? How fun is it to be pregnant? It's good. It's joyful. It's rough sometimes, isn't it? I need you to understand that Mary, being favored by God, had to travel 96 miles on a donkey while she was pregnant. Can you imagine that? She traveled 96 miles on a donkey while she was pregnant. And here's how favored she was. When they finally got to the place, she went into labor. And as she's going into labor, they're looking for a place to have the baby. They say, look, can we go up here in the inn? Can we stay in somebody's house? They say, look, people are coming from all over the place. Everybody's been traveling just like you have. There's no room. He says, but there's room over there. And he points to the tower of the flock. And they go in. And as they have the baby, the angels speak to these men. The angels speak to these men. And they go in. And they say, we know where that baby's been born. He's being born down there where the spotless, without blemish lambs are born that will be offered as a sacrifice. And when they go in, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world was born in the tower of the flock in Bethlehem just as it was prophesied hundreds of years before. And these angels, these, these, these shepherds begin to tell Mary and them what the angels say. And in verse, chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, it says, And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Two times it says that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now here's the thing. Is you got to get to a position as a believer. There's a reason Jesus calls us believers. You know why? Because we believe. And we can't call ourselves believers if we truly don't believe. And as believers... We choose not only to believe in who Jesus is and what he's done, but we choose to believe in the promises that he gives us. And Mary chose two times, it says, that she kept all those things. She treasured those words. She treasured those promises. And she continued to ponder them in her heart. And here's what, the, here's, here's what it's saying. It's saying that your heart, if you will take the promises of God, becomes the seedbed that is actually going to produce miracles in season. If you will take the promises of God and begin to meditate on them, I don't care what you need, whether you need healing or deliverance or freedom or you need to see your family saved or this community transformed or whatever you need to see, there are promises for all of those things. But you have to take a hold of those promises, ponder them in your heart because in due season, those promises will give birth and you will see a miracle in your life. Mary pondered these things for 30 years. And she thought about him day in and day out about what Jesus would become because of the promises that were given her. And look at how strong it moved her. Jesus' first miracle, he turned water into wine and they were at a wedding feast and Jesus said, woman, it's not my time. And she just looked at the people and said, hey, 
do what he says. Because what? She got Jesus to step out of his time. He wasn't supposed to do a miracle at that point. He said, it's not my appointed time to step out and do a miracle yet. Woman. Called his mother woman. In the King James Version. And what I'm trying to say to you is that is it possible that if you hold on to the promises of God and believe them that you can move the very heart of God to do things even outside of the time? I believe it with all my heart. I believe that you move the heart of God. I believe that your faith moves the heart of God. The scripture says it's impossible to please God without faith. And when you, when somebody begins to believe God for impossible things and say, I'm going to hold on to it. If it takes 30 years, I'm going to hold on to it. And at this point, Mary said, I don't care if it's your time or not. I believed long enough. And because of it, Jesus was moved and he performed his first miracle by turning water into wine at this wedding feast. Moved by the heart of his mother who had been pondering on the promises for 30 years. And that's a good word. And what I'm telling you is some of you, you need to get a hold of this word. So here's what we're going to do. Why don't you just bow your heads where you're at. You know, there's still, even though we, we preach about these promises, the, the greatest promise still remains that even while we're yet sinners, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 